All right, welcome back to another episode of a lawyer and a policy analyst walk into a bar. This is episode 10 of season 5. We're calling this one Jolly Old St. Capitalist. We're talking the economics of Christmas and is a topic that we have wanted to do for a few seasons now, but we never got to. Um, but I think the stars were just probably waiting to align so that we could get a great guest, which we have today. Um, so we have with us Dr. Simon Natrum. He's an economist as well. And we'll let him introduce himself in a bit. But as always, I'm the lawyer, Jadrick Cummings. And I'm Delano D'Souza, the policy analyst. And like Jadrick said, uh, we've been trying to do this episode for at least maybe two seasons now. and It hasn't quite happened. But I said this <laughs> yeah. year, given all that's happening uh, with COVID-19 and everything, the VAT holidays and everything that's happening across the region right now, uh, we had to touch it. We had to um, to go about it. And of course, like Jared said, we have a great guest, uh, a colleague of mine uh, at UWI, uh, Dr. Simon Natrum, uh, who is really a public economist in many respects. Simon, I think you'd, a lot of your work has focused around taxation and so on. But I'm gonna let, we're going to let Simon introduce himself and then we jump directly into the pod. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Simon Natrum. I'm a lecturer in economics at the University of the West Indies at Cave Hill campus as uh, my colleague Delano has pointed out, um, I am mostly a public economist and so, you know, I tend to deal with anything uh, public policy related, uh, mostly from an economic perspective. Um, and part of this includes, as Delano has pointed out, all of the fun stuff around Christmas, including VAT holidays and double salaries and all that great jazz. So I am uh, excited to be here um, with the lawyer and the policy analyst today. Thanks for having me, guys. Definitely, yeah, Simon. Pleasure. Yeah, um, so as usual, guys, there's a little bit of background. Um, of course, Christmas is, is a jolly season, a festive season. A lot of us uh, now are wrapped up in, in, in the rapture that is Christmas. Um, and one of the most common thoughts about Christmas, apart from, of course, from it being uh, a time of joy and spending, spending time with family, friends, and so on, is that our economies depend on Christmas spending. Um, the arguments often made include that Christmas spending boosts production, it sustains and creates jobs, as well as increases the GDP, the gross domestic products of the country. Uh, there's so many different arguments with respect to that, and we're going to tackle some of them today. Um, several studies have indicated that the average American will spend in excess of US $800 on Christmas gifts. That's a lot. Um, for 2021, the US National Retail Federation survey, uh, it showed that holiday shoppers spent uh, Plan to spend, sorry, around 998 US dollars on everything from presents and pies uh, to trees uh, for their homes. And so that's a lot of money there. If you if you multiply that by the, the number of households, the number of people and so on, uh, it, 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 it adds up quite quickly. So also a New York Times report said that that magnified money, sorry, found that under half of consumers said that they had taken on debt for this holiday season. And they said that it took on at least, or they plan to take on an, an average of US $1,325 um, uh, this season in terms of debt. And of course, many indicated that they were going to be unable to pay it um, when it comes January. And of course, we always speak about January being three months long and so on. So all that has implications. And we're going to discuss several aspects of this uh, in this pod. And so for, while for many, the holiday season is a time of joy, but one notable economist, and, and this is a paper that I read recently um, that I, I read again, just before this episode, uh, David Kyle uh, Johnson, who wrote The Myth That Stole Christmas, he argued that the common wisdom that Christmas is good for the economy is wrong and misplaced. 
and that the seasonal spending actually makes the economy worse. And that's why we have Simon here to chat about this. He also argues that the expenditure over the festive, festive period serves to inflate the credit bubble. And I just spoke a little bit about credit cards and, and what persons intend to spend. And it's generally wasteful spending. So before we get into the ham of the matter, and I hope you guys saw what I did there, the ham of the matter. <laughs> my first <laughs> yeah. question to both of you is, how much do you guys usually spend during Christmas? Um, right. Well, for me, I think that isn't as big no as it was probably when I was a child, which is probably kind of weird to say. But I remember asking my parents for money to buy gifts to all my friends. You have to buy a gift for everyone in your family. Well, I have to buy something for me, Jadrick boy. You don't even buy you don't even <laughs> give it <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> That's the tell you, since it's years now, you know, so now it's just probably a little one or two gifts to your family. But I would say including the like grocery for the entire family and that kind of thing, if I were to look at it, I'd probably say around uh, maybe 1200 EC. 1200 easy ballin over you i know you're a man about tongue <laughs> <laughs> so you know the older i got the the more i i felt like i took on responsibility of buying gifts for everyone in my family for the kids in my family um you know i also felt like i needed to um do something to to make my parents and my my family feel appreciated so i i typically tend to spend quite a lot of money on on christmas gifts um over the last few years i've also um you know started hosting a christmas eve dinner with my you know intimate family and so i spend uh, quite a bit of money on that as well I, I, I love myself a, a christmas tree um uh, and so you know i i don't mind um, spending the money at Christmas, and so you know, I'm I'm sure I spend well in excess of a thousand Barbados dollars, maybe up to fifteen hundred Barbados dollars on on the Christmas season is my guess. Boy, <laughs> yeah, man. I, I mean, I, I could definitely appreciate that. <laughs> that um, for me, uh, I mean, I asked a question, I just realized I didn't answer. For me, I, I I've over the years I've been spending as much, and I'll, I'll tell you, there was this. I think the last time I really spent money, I had I felt like, so generous. I had. Um, spent, you know, I said I was buying a gift for everybody in my family. I was doing everything, and I, and then I, I must get one gift. I, 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 just <laughs> I was, you didn't get back anything. <laughs> yeah, I didn't get back nothing. And I must say the last time. <laughs> That's from the last time I spent serious money on Christmas. Also, too, um, being a struggling student for so long, um, it's, it's really now starting to um, weigh off that you actually have some finances to do some of the things that that so so. I, you know, probably got a Christmas tree from next year. I haven't bought a Christmas tree this year, but perhaps, perhaps from next year, <laughs> we'll start that. But, um, obviously, all of us here spend money on Christmas, and most people do. Um, so, I kind of want to zone in on, on, on a couple of things that we started with. Um, one, I wanted to ask Simon, particularly uh, in terms of some some perspectives that I that I read, and I, I thought it would be good to pick his brain on it. And I, um, So, we spoke about David Johnson. And we spoke about the fact that they argued that the purported benefits of Christmas uh, in terms of the spending has really perpetuated a capitalistic force that has been designed uh, in terms of the presence. And so uh, it's really been designed to justify the existence of a lot of industries uh, out there. And then economist Drill Wald Fogels, he argues in his book Scroogeonomics uh, that Christmas spending creates deadweight loss. And in it, uh, he said that the U.S., tends to spend around US $12 billion propping up non-essential industries. And this is part, part that I found interesting, Simon, uh, in terms of electronic entertainment and so on. So they spend a lot of money on that. While things like infrastructure and inequality 
uh, well, infrastructure crumbles and, and inequality continues to rise. So two questions based on those, Simon. One, what is deadweight loss? Uh, I actually read um, some notes that you did that you explained it really well. So I thought I would ask you for, for our listeners, what is deadweight loss? And second, what are your views on some of these assertions by these two guys? Okay, so there's so much to unpack here with um, these, particularly these two economist views who... Um, as you can tell, they're the ones, I think, shouting the loudest about um, Christmas. Now, let's begin with the, the simple idea of deadweight loss. Typically, in economics, we call deadweight loss sort of the value of transactions that didn't happen because of some policy. So, for example, um, we tend to associate deadweight loss with taxation. So I impose a 5% tax on the sale of all goods, it's going to create deadweight loss. Because as a result of people having lower incomes, they're going to spend less. And the value of what this sort of counterfactual um, reduction in spending is what we would typically associate with uh, the term deadweight loss. Now, with Christmas and what uh, Joel Waldfogel is suggesting is sort of completely the opposite. Rather than saying it's the value of transactions that would have happened but didn't actually happen, what he's saying is at Christmas, there are lots of transactions that have happened that really shouldn't have happened and that they only happen because of this sort of uh, Christmas spirit of giving. And he's suggesting that uh, we should treat deadweight loss symmetrically. Now, that's the, the sort of first answer to your question. Um, what is deadweight loss? But there's so much to unpack about how he measures uh, the sort of deadweight loss or the value of uh, gift given at Christmas. So let's begin with just how he measures it. You know, he sort of says to a person, you got this gift, how much would you have bought it for? How much would you have paid for it? Right? Um, or uh, and how much do you think it costs? How much would you pay for it? The difference between those things is sort of like what we would consider deadweight loss. But what his questions very specifically uh, exclude is uh, sentimental value. Uh, and he says them in, in his questions, in his survey, in his original survey that he con conducted. He says, um, you know, give us these values of what you would have paid for this thing but uh, exclude sentimental value. But that sort of misses the entire picture of why we give gifts at Christmas. We don't give gifts at Christmas just because um, we want to transfer income from one person to the other. We give gifts because they're sentimental. There's some emotional attachment involved. Um, and the, the sort of very narrow economic concept of deadweight loss is very very misguided i think and it's it's uh an extremely sort of narrow view of the world that the only thing that matters is whether a person would have bought this thing for themselves so Wait, but simon you, you can't carry sentiment to the supermarket now <laughs> kidding no i i i agree and you know economists have always measured things in what we can take to the supermarket maybe this is a uh, this is a topic that's broader than just economists alone. Um, really, uh, while so let me let me take you to his sort of conclusion. He says, well, um, if 
you exclude sentimental value, then if I buy a gift for $10 and it's worth less than $10 to the person that I'm giving it to, then there's a deadweight loss. And what he says is the ideal is that really I should have just given the person the $10. Uh, but Delano, you tell me, if I were your um, best friend and I gave you $10, as in $10 cash, wouldn't you think, huh, this is a, a, a bit of a, a weak gift, isn't it? That, that's all you gave me, bro, after all these years. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and that's all I could think to give you is $10. It lacks sentiment. It lacks effort. It doesn't build any interpersonal relationship. And sure, economics is about economics. It's about dollars and cents. But economics is often narrowly construed um, and taken to be the, the, the sort of end point of everything and sure in a narrow sense there may be deadweight loss but we might be creating an enormous amount of societal value um, through interpersonal relationships that are being fostered and look there's a, a simple concept in economics called revealed preference and it says if people do something it's because they thought it was the best thing for themselves and if people continue to give gifts every year year after year after year spending upwards of 800 us dollars um, in gifts alone, um, it sounds to me that people actually enjoy the process of giving gifts. And there's another thing that we miss as well. That is, it's not only the person who receives the gift, who enjoys it and who gets some sentimental value from it, but also the person who gives the gift actually generates some uh, sort of what we would call sort of a, like a warm glow effect an enjoyment of giving somebody a gift. And as Christmas is a, a sort of quote-unquote Christian holiday, obviously, I suppose you could use the, the Christian verse that says it's better to give than to receive. Um, so, you know, maybe there isn't quite so uh, much of a big deal imposed on the fact that there may be some narrow deadweight loss. In 2014, um, there was a, or maybe it was 2013, there was a, a survey and there's this quite popular survey that is done of uh, economists uh, at Chicago Booth um, of, uh, you know, top US economists. And they asked them essentially, do you agree with um, Joel Wald Fogel's idea that giving holiday gifts is inefficient and it creates deadweight loss and people should just give cash Um and 54% of them disagreed, of top US economists disagreed. So this isn't a consensus in economics at all. Only 17% of the respondents actually agreed with um, this idea that there's some deadweight loss. So you can think of it sort of an outlier perspective because most economists actually understand that this concept of deadweight loss is very narrowly construed and is best applied to things like taxation rather than uh, more societal concerns, such as um, gift giving, which, uh, you know, we think actually does something for society. Uh, thanks for the explanation, uh, Simon. I, and talking about gift giving and the joy of gift giving and making an effort every year to give gifts, something that comes to my mind is that we've had a hard couple of years with the onset of the pandemic and with basically all our economies trying to pull together some form of recovery um, 
and in these economic challenges with COVID-19, is Christmas expenditure, you think, more important this year than, than any other? Uh, you know, I'd say that Christmas expenditure this year is more important because our societies are strained. Um, if there's one thing that this pandemic has done to us is it strained all of our social interactions. And so, you know, gift giving and gift spending and all of that is, I think, most important because of what it could do to sort of continue to tie our society back together. And I think that uh, now is especially important, more important, I think, than just uh, the plain spending alone. Uh, and particularly in the Caribbean for one major reason. Um, our economies aren't really consumption driven in the same way that an American economy might be or a European economy might be. Uh, for one large reason, it's because most of our spending ends up sort of disappearing outside of the country. Um, some estimates suggest, for example, in Barbados, that around 60% of every dollar spent is going to end up outside of the country. So, uh, you know, you you spend $100, let's say uh, 60 of that is going to go outside the country and only 40 of it is going to end up benefiting the local economy. And so it's unfortunately tends to be a rather roundabout route uh, to benefiting the local economy. Um, and... Uh, you know, I, I think, sure, it, it does provide a bit of a boost, but not as much as we would like to think. And so I don't necessarily think that Christmas expenditure, uh, for Caribbean countries in particular, that Christmas expenditure mm, is necessarily the best way to get our economies back on track. I mean, but Simon, you, you say that, right? And, and, and obviously, a lot of our listeners are, are not economists, Um a lot of them would say, listen, um, I understand that a lot of this money, uh, I mean, and, and you've spoken to, to the 60% or so that may uh, escape via leakages and so, but, but many would say, listen, but this is creating employment right here in, 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 in Barbados, right here in St. Vincent, the Grenadines and so on. And but for Christmas, many persons will not have a job because, of course, we know a lot of seasonally employed persons, a lot of persons take on additional staff. Uh, sometimes they, you know, uh, you know, there, there, there's benefits in terms of uh, what comes about from the spending. So some persons might say, listen, uh, all you've said in terms of the leakages and so on, there is still a lot of value here. So I, I do agree that there is still significant value um, to be had from spending and maybe from Christmas spending. But let me uh, sort of recast the question in a slightly different way. I spend, I said, you know, I spend X amount of money uh, each year at Christmas, where do I get that money from? Well, it turns out that every year I, I sort of have in my mind that I'm going to spend X amount of money on Christmas each year. And so during the other 11 months of the year, I typically tend to put away something. You know, you're, you're sort of gradually saving because you know Christmas must come each year. And you know you have to buy gifts, you know you have to do all this fun stuff at Christmas. And so you're sort of what we would call delaying consumption during the year uh, and then just sort of uh, letting it all out in this massive burst at the end of the year. It doesn't always necessarily mean that we are spending more than we would have uh, in the absence of Christmas. 
in fact, we would probably have had sort of smoother consumption. Those people who have jobs only for one month of the year may have had jobs throughout the entire year uh, if there was no Christmas. So what Christmas does is that it doesn't necessarily create more spending than there would have been in the absence of Christmas. It just sort of uh, concentrates the spending all in one place. And that's why it doesn't necessarily uh, say that our economies are, are better off for Christmas. Um, they're sort of more volatile for Christmas. Uh, and that's not to say that Christmas is a, a bad thing or that Christmas doesn't help. And maybe some people do spend more uh, at Christmas because of Christmas than they would have if there was no Christmas. Uh, but I'm not entirely sure that we have a clear way of figuring that out, to be honest. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you can sort of think of it more as a bunching of spending all in the last bit of the year. Uh, whereas without Christmas, maybe people would have spent that money all through the rest of the year. Simon, that's a great point. And, and David Kyle spoke to that in, in, in his work because he, he essentially was saying, listen, you know, this whole idea of delayed spending um, it, it's what it's, it's what we see, you know. You you know that Christmas is coming up in November, October, and so on. You're probably not spending as much because you're holding back. So you know, I want to do something extra for Christmas. Even trips, sometimes a lot of persons say, well, "I'm going to travel for Christmas or what have you," uh, you know. So so there is that. Um, another aspect too um, that perhaps is a little bit different, Simon. Um, well, is the fact that a lot of persons tend to come home for Christmas, and when they come home, they spend as well. Um, so, so there's that aspect of it too. Albeit, we, we know that some of that money is going to still make its way out of the economy um, through leakages, um, but that's another important element. But I really like that bit about um, the delayed spending. And also, too, I was having a conversation uh, with a colleague from St. Augustine, and we were talking about the fact that in Trinidad, for example, um, they have several festivals throughout the year. So, of course, you know, there's carnival around January, end of January, February. Then they have these Indian celebrations and so. And what we don't appreciate, at least I didn't appreciate coming from the Eastern Caribbean, is that those festivals in Trinidad, for example, are associated with almost Christmas-like type spending. Uh, and so for, for the economy of Trinidad, they're, certain, they're, they're, you know, they're more you know, high points in terms of uh, consumerism and more spending uh, throughout the year that's hard to smooth out uh, their economy a little bit more than we have in terms of the, o the OECS, for example, where, you know, Christmas is, is concentrated and we have Carnival, for example, um, that, does a, that, that does a lot of the, uh, where you see a lot of the spend. And it's always interesting to me because I come back to uh, one of my former places where I used to work and that really, when I worked there, really zoned into me how important Christmas and Carnival and, and these sort of concentration of, of expenditure are because at that company that company did not turn a profit in any uh, they only turned a profit in about three or four months of the year uh looking at it from a monthly perspective all the rest months were losses and so they essentially made their money during the festivals and during the christmas period uh, and that said a lot of, about how we concentrate our spending well maybe we we should have carnival all year round i think that's that's my solution to the problem I'm with that. Definitely with that. Uh, but, but Simon, as we're talking about expenditure, uh, I want to get your thoughts on the tax breaks for holidays. Now, of course, we know that in Barbados yesterday, actually, we had the, the, the Novat Day. Um, and, and, uh, in Antigua, they actually have an annual um, no ABST days. They actually have more than one days in Antigua. And of course, ABST is the Antigua and Barbuda sales tax. Uh, essentially same as that. Okay, um, I'm going to ask. 
Yeah, it's actually the same as that where they have those. But in Antigua, what's interesting is that they actually have the basket of goods that become VAT exempt uh, or tax exempt or that. Most, so for example, in Antigua, a lot of persons purchase big ticket items on those days. Vehicles, for example, are big ticket items that are VAT exempt. So a lot of persons just say they're going to buy a new vehicle coming on at the end of the year and so on. So big ticket items and so whereas of course in Barbados yesterday, we would have seen things like gas, I think vehicles and so on, big purchases, a lot of those were excluded uh, from that. But I wanted to ask Simon from a, from a sort of public economic standpoint, are these beneficial and can you give us some insight there in terms of our listeners uh, as to the, the motivation and the impact, if any? Okay, so I think these... these um tax holidays in particular are interesting things. Um, a tax holiday essentially reduces the price to the consumer. And so the consumer observes a, a much lower price. For example, in Barbados, uh, it would have the effect of, of taking off that 17.5% VAT, um, which it turns out is quite a lot of the, the eventual price to consumers. What we know as economists is that lowering the price increases demand for stuff. Um, and that was the intention of um, the, the holiday of this, this Novak day, was to increase demand for a lot of stuff. Um, in general, then, people may spend more money um, as a result of these holidays than they would have in the absence um, of these these Novak holidays. Um, however, you won't get the sort of the full effect of it because there are people who would have uh, spent yesterday who weren't going back to the supermarket at all for the rest of the week. In the absence of that holiday, they probably, you know, the supermarket might have seen uh, relatively even traffic for the rest of the week or the stores or wherever. Now, what the government is essentially doing is sort of saying okay we'll give up a bit of revenue in order to claw back what we would call some of that deadweight loss and so we go back to this concept of deadweight loss from the beginning so remember i said deadweight loss is best thought of in the context of taxes so you impose a 17 and a half percent tax on something um, and the, the the sort of result is that people are going to spend less you remove that tax and you expect to get rid of that deadweight loss, at least for the day. And so that's the benefit, really, that the government is trying to generate. And I think it does have um, some benefit. The problem is, obviously, that uh, the government gives up some revenue. Um, and as long as the government gives up some revenue, it has to uh, make its adjustment somewhere uh, in its spending. I think a single VAT day doesn't um, probably doesn't do a, a huge amount of damage to the government's uh, tax revenue. Um, it makes people much happier. And I think taken in the context of, uh, of uh, I, I think we might be at the beginning of an inflationary cycle that where prices are beginning to rise, not just in the Caribbean, uh, but all across the world, uh, mostly as a result of, of uh, the pandemic and the, the supply chain issues that have followed, taken in that context, then uh, the removal of these uh, these uh, taxes just for a day at least um, will in particular benefit those who need it the most. 
Uh, and we would have seen that but, yesterday in Barbados. But, but Simon, not across you, as you've mentioned, the, the supply and logistics issues that we've been seeing globally. Uh, that's one of the questions I had as a follow-up. I wanted to ask, obviously, we've seen prices have declined. Demand has gone up. A lot of persons have purchased goods and services. Uh, we obviously recognize that supermarkets, stores, etc. are selling out faster than they typically would have. Or perhaps it might even out, as you said. Um, but does that exacerbate... Uh, the situation in terms of obviously those goods that have been sold, sold yesterday have to now be replenished and with the ongoing supply and logistics issue do you think that it might have an impact in terms of inflation because they now have to place new orders you know uh what are your thoughts there well i think that most of our or sort of inflationary pressures in uh at present at least aren't coming from uh, the domestic economy they're coming from outside and so if people rush out and buy all the things on the in, in the stores in Barbados I don't think it's gonna cause prices to increase so much most of that is being caused by uh, the cost of shipping the cost of freight uh, the cost to get raw materials from all across the world the fact that there are just lots of things that aren't being made right now um, but what I think is is sort of more interesting is that the people who do rush out and buy these things are, are again, they're sort of revealing their preference uh, for uh, going through the trouble of standing in line for hours, of dealing with the rush, of dealing with all of that, uh, because it is most important to them uh, to get uh, stuff 17% off. Uh, a lot of people who didn't go out yesterday to take advantage of it are the people who didn't necessarily need the 17% off. And, in sort of weighing their options, they say, you know what, this is this isn't a huge benefit to me, um, and those tend to be the people who are uh, better off in society. And so, in a in a sort of loose way, you're seeing that this this uh, that holiday is itself a progressive policy um, because those people who go and take advantage of it are those people who are sort of revealing that they're the ones who need it the most in the end simon not, not to cross you i always have i'm cognizant that the average person listening is not gonna understand what do you mean by progressive when i say progressive i mean that it benefits those at the bottom of the income ladder more than it benefits those at the top of the income ladder exactly so of course we always want to make that clear um, you touched on, again, Simon, you touched on something I was just about to ask you. Uh, we saw a lot of long lines here across the island in Barbados. We've seen it in Antigua. It was a, it was a madhouse in many respects. Um, what does it say about our economies that during the height of a pandemic, persons are willing, and you spoke to their revealed preference, that they are willing to wait for possibly hours in, in lines uh, to save what in some instances might be relatively negligible sums of money to those at the top of the income ladder, of course, but to them, it means a whole lot. Well, well, Dylan, I think you've hit on one of the biggest issues we've been dealing with throughout the entire pandemic. It's been, you know, more than a year and a half of this, which is balancing uh, the public health um, versus the the sort of economic and financial health of of families and households, not just across the region but across the world, um, it's been the same problem that everyone has faced. Uh, individuals also face this problem. You have to make your decision whether you are going to go outside and uh, increase your risk of um, you know 
contracting uh, the the virus um, or you know whether you're going to stay inside and sort of lose out on the potential savings. It's been a difficult decision that everyone has had to make at, a, make at an individual level um, and it's the, sort of the same decision inherently that governments have been uh, having to make. I don't know what's the best way to resolve this. Um, individuals do have to make their own choices uh, and individual governments have to make their own choices. There's no, um, there's absolutely no right or wrong answer here. Um, and we've all struggled with, with, you know, which thing is more important at which point in time, the public health or the economics of it. And, you know, we've been struggling to, to make an accurate trade-off. And, and, and I think yesterday, what you saw is that for some people, the financial is far more important than the public health issues, while for others, the public health issues uh, take precedent. And that's sort of often going to be distributed along the lines of who has more money and who doesn't. Those who uh, are better off are the ones who are going to think, uh, you know, public health is going to be more important for me because they're the ones uh, who have higher and probably more more stable incomes. Um, I think the pandemic uh, has highlighted the inequalities that we face in our society. Uh, and yesterday's Novak holidays is just another example of those inequalities. You ain't lying at all, Simon. You're not lying. You ain't never lying. Um, we've touched on the VAT holidays, which is something I know a lot of our listeners wanted us to, to, to discuss. Another element that we want to talk about is that, you know, is the double salary. So far, we've been talking about, you know, spending all of this money and that people, you know, are intrigued and they want to spend this money around Christmas. We've spoken about the holidays. We've spoken about the, um, deadweight loss and all that comes with it. But I want to turn our attention to where the money is coming from, uh, particularly around Christmas, uh, and, and, and in particular the dead weight, in, in particular, sorry, the double salaries. Now, I was doing some reading about this double salary. My first encounter with a double salary, believe it or not, it's, I, at the previous place I worked, we had an office in Guadeloupe, and, you know, we were running uh, a certain budget that come across my table, and I had said across my desk, and I said, but hold on, there's an extra payment here, and somebody pointed out to me that in Guadeloupe, you're mandated to pay a 13th salary and and i was like what <laughs> like as in mandated as in you don't have a choice uh you know and that was interesting to me because i hadn't known that up to that point um that you know it was a requirement and in doing some reading i kind of realized uh, jarek and simon that this thing is actually more common than a lot of our listeners would think yeah we don't realize how common it is so, you know, we've seen 13 month salary and it's known as the 13. It's an extra paycheck, essentially. And it, it is typically equal to one month salary. Uh, and it's paid in addition to your employee's annual salary. Uh, and I was doing some reading and I kind of I found an article that said it started in the Philippines in, 1970, in the 1970s. And then it spread to other countries. I don't quite know if this is true. So if it's not, but I, I found it interesting that a place like the Philippines would, would, would be sort of the originator um, for, for a policy like this, if indeed that article was, was accurate, I didn't get a chance to uh, to look back at it and, and, and verify. Uh, but of course, the 13th salary goes by different names depending on the country, uh, but the principle is fairly simple. You can either get get it in terms of the 13th, uh, it's essentially a 13th month pay, so it's Christmas up, up holiday pay, some people call it that. Um, and of course, like I said, some, some employers globally are mandated to do so. 
Uh, the argument or one of the arguments is that there are, a year typically has 52 weeks, uh, which is 13 periods of four weeks. So it's a nice and square way to balance it off. Yeah. Yeah. And additionally, something that I also discovered quite recently as well, Delano. Um, so when you saw when I saw it today, you know, you know, in the little notes for today is that as well as it being mandated, almost every country has a different way in which it is paid out or different, um, like across the board for the most part, it's equivalent to one month, like you said, but different countries might have different timelines for when that is paid out. So some specifically might state, for example, it must be paid before Christmas or it must be paid before the end of the year or even within X number of months of the end of the financial year. So I found that interesting that um, even though, like you say, it might have originated um, in the Philippines back in the 70s, um, flowing on from there, every country that might have adopted it, they, they found a different way of implementing how it is um, how it is paid out or how they mandate that it's paid out to employees across the world or in those countries where it is where it is mandated. So I found that very interesting as well. Yeah, I saw... A, go ahead, Simon. I think I saw you wanted to say something. But I was going to say, I saw a couple of countries that paid out, that pays that 13 salary in July. Think about Carnival with the 13 salary in July, yeah, Jadrick. Yeah, exactly. think, think, July, you gave me a second salary to enjoy Carnival. I just feel blessed. You know, you know what I mean? Go ahead, Simon. I think you're going to say something. Well, I'm, I'm unfortunately going to be the, 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 the damper economist here because I think... Um, if, a, if an employer knows that they need to pay you 13 salaries, um, they're just going to split your salary into 13 bits rather than into 12 bits. Um, I and I, I think <laughs> that's what you, you typically tend to see around the world. It's, you know, maybe the intention of the, the 13th salary at the beginning was to increase people's salary by one twelfth. Um, but in the long run, um, and I think that's, that's the curious thing that you get with a lot of these policies that um, when people expect them, uh, they tend to lose their bite. So if, uh, and I see there were, you know, some, some places in the Caribbean where, uh, at least one place for sure, where there was a, an announcement that they would be paid an additional month's salary, that they would be paid a double salary. Big well, up sick, kids! <laughs> There you go. Now that's a surprise, right? And what that does is, okay, uh, I didn't expect this money and the employer didn't expect to pay this money. And so this is actually an increase in my salary. Now, if I hire someone... Sorry, Simon, that, just to say though, that that's only the public sector and this has yeah, been so, something uh, that they've been doing for maybe two, three years. So it's not okay. entirely unexpected. It's unexpected okay. in the context that it didn't happen last year because of COVID. But prior to that, I think it happened to perhaps the three straight years that they had it. But go ahead. Sorry. Okay. Uh, and and so even the first year you do it, it's sort of unexpected. It works out well. Uh, and the, the employer thinks, okay, sure, I'll, I'll put out this money. But after some time, it becomes expected. And when you hire new people, um, it's sort of baked in, likely going to be baked into their their salary as a result it's the same thing for for this novak holiday and people were asking well why why did the barbados government wait so late to announce it um and why uh you know it, it is it's it's caused chaos and there's some administrative issues and some businesses weren't on board as a result but the point is if you announce a a, a novak holiday um you know let's say two months in advance 
well, people are going to delay their spending as well until you get this Novak holiday. And it sort of creates the same issue. Sure, maybe there might be some increase in spending, but what you're doing is you're dampening the economy right now, uh, sort of in hopes that there's one day this massive amount of spending that um, that sort of you know benefits you significantly. So there is this this um, sort of issue, and particularly in, in economic policy making, we talk a lot about uh, about unannounced uh, policies, um, and often you have to make policies sort of unannounced, or people will game the system. You know, it might be that if you announce it two weeks in advance or two months in advance, businesses might decide they're going to raise their prices. Um, and so there, there are a bunch of ways that you can try to game this if it's expected. And so that's, uh, I think you said Antigua has their own form of a, a sales tax holiday. Uh, and in a case like that, you know, people are sort of sitting down waiting until this holiday to of buy course, all of their... They're waiting to buy the car and every year, that's when people just buy the new Jeep and thing. I mean, and you see it. And, and it's, it's interesting that you say something. You see it. Like last week, week before, I, 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 you know, I asked some colleagues, some friends and so supermarkets and so on so full you know things were so everybody will because they would have announced this there's no that there's no abst date perhaps the end of last month so people know further to that it's almost an annual thing so people know you know so everybody holding back exactly so you're sort of you're sort of creating a a, a, a little bit of a mini depression in spending um because it's an expected uh holiday and and you know the the unfortunately uh, while it does seem a bit chaotic the approach of announcing it you know even just the day before is probably better because it creates that surprise and it creates as much benefit as possible for the consumer and for the economy as well yeah um, going back to to simon's point a while ago where he indicated that employers might just um or what they do when in these countries where it's mandated and you know okay well i have to make 13 payments then you would just adjust your salary into 13 payments and as an employer that just came to me like you know would i be able to do this but something that comes to mind is the fact that say for a country or countries in the eastern caribbean where it's not mandated if they were to introduce that now that a bit of legislation to say okay you must pay a 13 salary then the difficulty that would arise um, legally in that sense is that you would still have to keep your employee's salary as it is now, but adding that 13 salary. If you were to try to adjust, say, their their annual salary into 13 bits, then you'd be effectively reducing their monthly salary, their monthly wages. And then, you know, it brings into the discussion things about severance and things like that since you'll be giving them a reduction. So I think with countries now where it's not in place, it kind of, you know, sticks the employer to having to continue to pay that monthly salary and introduce a 13 salary, which would be quite interesting if countries were to try to bring in some bit of legislation to that effect now. There you go. So it works right at the very beginning. Uh, And at the very beginning, it, it, it could sort of stick the employer, but it does work the very beginning to increase a person's salary. Um, uh, and I suppose the question is, is it an, an effective policy in the long run? Um, be, you know, as economists, we think of the long run as, uh, quote unquote, the time period where everything has the ability to adjust. In the short run, you can't adjust people's wages. That's what we call sticky wages. Wages typically don't go down. Um, they typically only go up. And so they're, they're sort of, sticky or downwardly 
uh, rigid is a, a very technical way of putting it, but it's just saying that people's wages don't go down in the short run. Um, and so, sure, it definitely would work in the short run, and it works as a surprise. And the issue is, is it a good long-run policy? Um, probably just washes out in the long run, unfortunately. Uh, and I suppose it's getting back to Christmas. It's probably the same thing as Christmas as well. Probably just sort of the, the extra spending that we see at Christmas probably just washes out in the long run. Um, but that doesn't take away from the idea that, um, for example, gift giving is a, still a fantastic thing. But but what about well, obviously the government is doing this for a reason. You spoke about that. You spoke about the fact that you know if it's expected, uh, you know, it, it has the the impact or the intended impact up front. Um, but is it just politics then? I mean, this is something that in, invariably comes in because we we know in Saint Kitts, for example, we've we've seen it across the region now, Jadik, and you see in the pressure that Comrade Anda in Saint Vincent persons have been seen right. on social media. Look, Saint Kitts getting double salary. Um, I think Grenada is giving double salary to their um, to their nurses. You know, certain 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 um, certain different classes of workers are getting double salaries, and it's putting political pressure uh, on others. So is it just politics? And and of course, part of the reason why, at least in my mind, why, why this government in Saint Kitts and Nevis has been so successful is that they've had this policy every year. You know, you're getting like a double salary at Christmas and so on, and this helps in terms of of building. Uh, your, your political brand and, 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 and reinforcing what you're about in terms of being re-elected but of course uh, that's a whole other topic there and, and we don't want to we don't want to stray too far from that um, but we want to wind down I just looked at the time and I know we're on a tight clock today um, we want to talk about credit and Christmas Simon and Jarek uh, we spoke earlier about credit card debt that is going to accumulate over Christmas in the US and so of course an important element of this discussion uh, is that we feel that as a part of all the spending and it's not you, you know you spend money you spend gifts are all, all well and good but oftentimes there is a negative side to it where persons incur debt that sometimes they can't manage yeah and so we have to ask ourselves is christmas sort of fueling this 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 credit bubble uh quote unquote uh and you know and is it likely to burst in the future so i, I was doing a little research in 2020, I think I was reading a survey from Barbados, Simon, you could perhaps update me if you know of any more recent figures. Um, household debt in, in, in Barbados had risen over the last two decades by a lot. We recognize um, that over the last the last 20 years, in Barbados, it had risen by 220% and it moved from $1.9 billion in December 2000 to $6.1 billion in March 2020. And interestingly, this was only a part of the debt that is represented by deposit-taking financial institutions here in Barbados. And of course, this excludes the trust and the financial companies and the credit unions and so. And so that says that a lot has happened in terms of the accumulation of debt. This is just to add some context to it. This isn't necessarily Christmas debt, mind you. Um, of course, 58% of it is was mortgages at the time. Approximately 33% were consumer loans, purchase of vehicles, home repairs, general use, and so on. Credit card debt as of March 2020 was approximately $295 million here in Barbados. Um, Jamaica, similar story, 2019, the level of household debt stood at 56.6 uh, cents for every $100. So all that to say, guys, because I, I don't, I don't want to go belabor the point. Essentially, we have a debt problem. Uh, some persons might say we have a debt problem. A lot of it is coming from consumer loans. So the question I want to ask you, Simon, is, is there a concern that Christmas is fueling 
consumer indebtedness and is it something valid in the caribbean we see it in the us uh, there have been studies that i've read in the us that have shown uh, statistically that 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 christmas is a is a huge part of why the debt increases in the us but is it a concern for us in the caribbean so i i think this is a tricky question to answer i don't actually think that uh, it has generated a, a a massive issue um we in the caribbean don't typically have, well, we have seen significant increases in our in our um, sort of credit to economic activity indicators. That is, uh, because we don't just want to look at how much total credit is. Credit is only bad, or household borrowing, or whatever is only sort of bad if it increases at a much faster pace than people's incomes. Um, and sure, it has increased at a faster pace than, than people's income, certainly in Barbados over the last uh, two or three decades or so um, in general. Now, over the last 10 years, uh, and maybe I say 10 years, but the financial crisis was now, well, 14 years ago. It's such a long time. Um, over that period, we have seen a sort of a, a reduction sort of slowly in, in domestic credit, um, certainly in Barbados and a, a Across the Caribbean. Now, is Christmas part of the problem? Uh, more than likely it is. Uh, and people probably do take on debt um, because of Christmas, because of the social pressure of Christmas that they wouldn't have taken on otherwise. They, they probably feel the need to take on this spending. Uh, and so it probably does cause a, a, a bump in our debt. But I don't think that the, the Caribbean has the same sort of uh, deep consumerist culture as for example America where credit card debt really had been for a long time uh, a major problem particularly leading up to the to the global financial crisis and so while it is a uh, you know maybe a, a really small concern I don't think it's a major issue that uh, Christmas creates a significant amount of increase in our household debt uh, and our household indebtedness in some cases what credit cards, for example, do is allow people to sort of uh, shift spending from January to December, because you guys will know uh, how people will talk about, you know, January is the longest month of the year because you spent all the money in December and you don't have any in January. Uh, but that is sort of exactly the point uh, of what uh, credit allows you to do. It allows you to transfer spending from one month or to another or from one year to another and so maybe you're you're eating um you're eating sardines for for a couple months after christmas but you had a fantastic christmas uh, and if in the end it sort of balances out then in general i think that's pretty fine now so something that I've seen from from my vantage point in, in my profession, and Simon mentioned the social pressure that some persons feel around this time. Um, I don't know how many persons watch Big Bang Theory out here, but, you know, Sheldon, he, he always says that uh, the foundation of Christmas and gift giving is reciprocity and that someone hasn't given you a gift. They've given you an obligation. No. <laughs> Bazinga. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, as, as dark as, as that might sound, you know, uh, we see it play out somewhat with the consumer loans where persons feel obligated to buy all these gifts. And the older you get, it tends to be more expensive gifts. 
And then, like we've said, you know, the Caribbean, there's this culture of doing home repairs, place, replacing. You had a guy new fridge, you had a guy new stove, you always carry a paint over, you pop down. Right. So, you know, not only is there that obligation, but where the Sheldonism comes in is that we, some persons feel obligated to back and guarantee loans for other persons. And I, I saw a colleague of mine put out a, a warning, you know, lots of Christmas tips surrounding this. As that, you know, with these consumer loans, we, we don't see the side effects until much later because many of them, many, many of the institutions that, that put them or that promote them, they will have like a Christmas loan where you don't start to pay interest until February or zero payments until January, etc. But we see it play out in the courts, uh, much like around Carnival, like post Carnival, September, October, we see persons in courts, you know, having to repay these little loans that they might take out. And, you know, persons come seeking advice. Um, because when X has stopped paying and when X has defaulted, you know, is why did I get this demand letter? You know, why the bank calling me, etc. And persons never really understand that they become indebted to repay loans um, to the same extent in many cases as the borrower. And ultimately, for me, it goes back to what Delano said in the introduction um, that a healthy economy generates Christmas spending by giving us extra money to spend, not the other way around. And it seems that year after year, like clockwork, we, you know, we bite off a bit more than we can chew and we put ourselves in a financial position that we could have avoided if our culture were maybe otherwise or if we saw the economy working in a way that we kind of idealize it to be. So I think around this time, just from, you know, what I see, I think we tend to see a bit more um, persons getting into debt. And uh, I think it's just probably a cultural thing, a seasonal thing, like I mentioned, carnival and so. But um but really, it's it's something that I wish persons probably could avoid as best they could. But I guess it's just um, something in our culture that really we can't really get ourselves out of. Uh, in addition to that, that's a great point, Jarek. In addition to that, Simon, I want to ask you, doesn't this whole notion of the credit card debt and, and pushing your spending, uh, bringing it up from January to December, for example, when January comes and you can't make the credit card payment, uh, and you have to make the minimum payment that you're forced to, to make the credit card payments over January, February, March, for example. Doesn't that reinforce the whole notion uh, of, of sort of um, skewing the expenditure within the economy? Because if you can't spend, if you can't spend January, February, March, then typically now you're ending up now doing most of your spending at the end of the year and then you're probably using your credit card again heading into Christmas. So doesn't it just reinforce then it doesn't it just become a cycle? absolutely it's a cycle and you know it's it's a unfortunately a, a tricky cycle to deal with um again the i think the difficulty is when uh, that both you guys have pointed out is is that uh, whatever um debt you take on um it comes at a cost and that cost is is the interest that you have to pay on whatever debt you took out uh, and that's the difficulty, I think, that a lot of people don't take into account uh, when making their decisions in, in December. Um, uh, and so, sure, a lot of the spending that happened in, in Christmas would have happened in, uh, you know, if there were no Christmas, it would have happened at other times. Um, and the, the credit issue, the real problem with credit is that um, spending at Christmas does technically then come at a higher cost um, as a result of if you do need to take on debt um, and it, it may not always be the best idea to, to 
take on additional debt um, in order to spend at Christmas. I, for one, wouldn't recommend it, um, but it is something that we see. Does it pose a systemic risk to our economies? No, I don't think so. Uh, does it pose a, a risk uh, to the lowest income households in our economy? Absolutely. Um, is there some way that we can deal with it? Well, we do need to deal with it with broader and bigger economic policies um, than just uh, telling people, you know, don't take on debt at Christmas. And I think that's a perfect way to wind down the discussion, guys. Uh, I know we're strapped for time. So, Jarek, we're going to jump right into the next segment of the pod. Of course, Simon, I don't know if you've listened before, but this is what we ask, where we ask, you know, what you're drinking to, where you're raising your glass to here at the bar with us. What are you drinking to, Simon? So, given all that we've talked about, I think I'm going to raise my glass to Christmas. Um, and the, the wonderful interpersonal experiences that we enjoy at Christmas, um, the warmth, the, the fuzzy feeling that you get. And I've always said that people in Barbados for sure are at least 50 times nicer at Christmas than they are at the rest of the year. And so that's what I'm raising my glass to. Definitely raise our glasses to that. Jarek, what are you drinking to? Um, yeah, I would, I would just raise my glass to, to generally the, the, the festiveness, the, the, you know, camaraderie and everything that's around this season. I, I love it. I'm glad to see that a lot of our borders have opened up. Maybe not for long, but at least family and friends are able to fly home for the season. And that's something that I don't think um, we could have said last year around this time because of the pandemic. But yeah, I'm drinking to just everyone having a good, happy, merry Christmas with loved ones, family. And hopefully we can um, get a grip on this thing, on this pandemic so that we it can become more normal and not something that we have to cross our fingers and hope we can have each year definitely Jarek, you can raise our glasses to that i was going to raise my glass along the lines of christmas but twice i don't take it as the dangers are going last now so now my glass <laughs> in the air my hand in the air the glass and i don't know but what i think i'm gonna do i'm going to raise my glass to us Jarek. this is our season finale uh of our yeah, season fifth five. season yeah of our fifth season we've been going over at it for a couple of years uh, great guests, great discussions always. I want to raise our glass to get in to the end of another season and looking forward to season six even bigger and better. So I just want to raise my glass to the Inter Bar podcast. I'll raise my glass to that as well. Yeah, we can definitely raise our glass to that. And uh, folks, that brings us to the end of another great episode. I want to thank Simon for joining us again. Thank you all for listening. Dan and I wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, a prosperous 2022. Um, watch your Christmas spending. And yeah, we'll catch you next time. As always, I'm the lawyer, Jadrick Cummings. And I'm Delano D'Souza, the policy analyst. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.